to me it felt like a moment between me and this beautiful predator it wasn't for the media or the papers or, or anything like that that's the first question did you take a photo and so it immediately puts you on the defensive because when you say no people say well, it didn't happen you're on the back foot of what's your little story welcome to big cat conversations we speak directly to people who've encountered one of Britain's big cats. We also discuss the bigger picture. I'm Rick Minter, and thanks for joining me. Welcome to episode 61 of Big Cat Conversations. I hope everyone's doing okay out there. We've got an Indian summer of sorts here in southwest England, where I'm based, and it's been fairly busy with big cat reports, both generally and again in Gloucestershire here. One standout event to mention is that on 17th September, just gone, we actually had two different credible clear reports here in Gloucestershire at the same date and at the same time, around 7.15pm. One was in the Forest of Dean and the other was near Sirencester, so on different sides of the county and with the River Severn in between and they were both big black panther types. So was that two different black leopards or are the advocates of interdimensional panthers going to claim that one? For one of those reports the cat was in the act of prizing away some squashed roadkill in the centre of the road. We hope to speak to that witness in a future show. Now on to this edition because we are due to hear about some different events in Scotland and first up is Paul MacDonald. Paul is a good friend of this show and we heard about Paul's encounters with large cats previously on the podcast in episode 16. We're back for more with him now because we've got several important things to catch up on. Paul, hi, welcome back to the show. Hi Rick and thanks for having me back. Great. Okay, Paul. And uh, over the last few weeks, we have been compiling a list of things to cover. So we're going to catch up with you on some various issues from mapping and recording. And we've got the Bannockburn body to come, which is the highlight in a minute. But before we get that far, can we just catch up on something which I think emerged this week as we're talking in mid-late September? Because you had something on your Facebook group, Big Cat Sightings in Scotland, about alleged releases of cats on Arthur's Seat area of Edinburgh. That's obviously hot news, so it'd be great to hear about that first off. Yes, uh, this was um, some information that came about suggesting that there was a, a fellow who owned a number of big cats in, uh, I believe it was the Glasgow area, in the 1980s and decided to release them. It must have got to the point where they were, it wasn't affordable or such to be keeping them. And there was a pair of ocelot described as being released on Arthur's seat, as well as others that when he was asked about, he'd only said that he'd donated them. But it was it was suggested that he'd, he'd released them as far up as Aberdeen. So exactly where these cats have potentially been released between Glasgow and Aberdeen, unfortunately, it's not possible to find out, as I don't believe he's around any longer. But it's, it's quite fascinating to hear of release stories in Scotland that way. Cats we're seeing now are likely generations removed from the ones released in the 1980s, but it's still interesting and uh, unusual to hear these stories. That report onto your Facebook group was just out of the blue and somebody 
made that allegation and you're treating it with some credibility, Paul, are you? Yes, yes. Um, I have been in touch with the person and uh, they confirmed that it was a friend of their father and uh, unfortunately her father is no longer around and she didn't know the name of her father's friend, unfortunately. Uh, So we don't have a, a lead to go on to get any further details. Okay. Well, you've got a connection with Arthur's Seat. For people who can't remember or haven't heard your previous input to the podcast series, can you just briefly remind us of, um, well, first of all, some people may not even know what Arthur's Seat is uh, as a famous landmark in Edinburgh. Quickly remind us of that and then quickly remind us of your connection with Big Cats and Arthur's Seat, if you could. Yeah, certainly. Um, uh, Arthur's Seat is is a prominent hill just on the outskirts of the centre of Edinburgh. It was in my, my university days, must have been 92, 93, perhaps. I was um, fencing up there at midnight with a couple of friends, as, as you do as students. <laughs> and um, we, we had a very close encounter with uh, a large cat. We couldn't see the colour. It was moonlit at the time, let's say. But we all distinctly heard it, this very deep, guttural growl that, really sends the shivers right up you. We saw that the head silhouetted as well, that was unmistakably an unusually, it seemed, large cat. That encounter sent the three of us running off that hill that night. I have since received a sighting report in, in recent years from a girl who had seen a very similar sounding cat on Arthur's seat in broad daylight. Both of those sightings up there were very strange. And bigger than an ocelot, from what you heard, you heard a more sort of leopard-like vocalisation. Yes, a very, very deep, deep guttural, but unmistakably large cat girl. Knowing Edinburgh like you do, because you've been based there for a long time, it is a place, presumably, where it would be convenient to deposit an exotic pet that had grown too big or too expensive to look after, because it is a bit of green space. It's quite, although it's fairly central in the conurbation, it's still a bit of a green lung, isn't it, where you can get away from people. If you, so if you wanted to quickly discard something, it would make sense to do it there, wouldn't it? Yeah, you, you certainly could do. I mean, Edinburgh is quite green and open generally, but especially in, in recent years, there's there's a lot of CCTV around and there's a lot of activity really at, at all hours in Edinburgh. You would expect a lot more sightings if there were cats, in fact, on, on Arthur's seat. I suppose then two ocelots, ocelots are pretty small, aren't they? The only thing they're going to mess up is other people's cats, I suspect. They're not going to be a danger to to humans. This will be a a sort of bit of a menace to other pets in the neighbourhood. We are going to hear in a couple of podcasts, episodes time, about some sightings in the south residential areas of Edinburgh that you guys picked up, you and your network picked up over summer months. So that is an unusual episode to hear about. And I'm looking forward to hearing about that uh, with your colleague, David. Great. Okay. So I think we've got a long list to get through, but we're going to get straight into the highlight, which is this unusual large cat body that you helped recover in Bannockburn over a year ago now. 
And we often say, well, there are lots of sort of pros and cons of Facebook. It can be a bit of a rowdy place sometimes and not always sort of helpful to the subject. But uh, this was a real gem of an event which turned up. And we've got to thank Facebook from it because somebody announced this find of what seemed to be a big cat body. And you made contact with a guy and went to recover it. And can you tell us all about it, please? Yeah, certainly. The report was put up on, on one of the Facebook groups, and uh, I was I was lucky enough to see it within some minutes of it going up. It wasn't just the report; it was uh, it was a couple of images came with that report of a carcass of what at first I think you could determine to be a carcass of a cat. The witness was describing it as as being unusually large. He described the the skull of the cat as being about the size of a large Easter egg which certainly suggests something much larger than, than domestic. Most of the flesh, it seems, was either decayed or stripped, but there was quite a significant amount of fur left around the, the bones that seemed to be a medium grey colour. So I, I contacted the witness to this, and uh, he'd said he'd seen the carcass and photographed it in that state about a week previously, and he'd just got around to reporting it. I got in touch with him and he was more than happy to meet me at the location, which was out by Bannockburn, just outside Stirling. We met there the following morning and unfortunately the carcass was gone. didn't appear to be a trace of it, so uh, a little bit disappointed. It was on right beside a golf course. So we both set about having a, a look around and a, a survey by, by foot and eye to see if there was any any remains, any bones or such lying around. I even went to the extent of checking in the bins of the golf course itself. This was during lockdown, Paul, wasn't it? Yes, yes, it, it, it was during lockdown. The place was quite quiet uh, in, that, in that respect, in terms of footfall. But it was a known dog walker's path. So we suspected that, in fact, it had just been removed to stop dogs maybe further tearing it apart. Anyway, I, I then had a much closer look, a fingertip search of the grass where he said the carcass, he'd seen it before. And I did manage to recover some hair sample and a few bone fragments. So perhaps there'd been a dog or two that had had a gnaw on the bones that were lying. And there were some small fragments of bone and hair that came up from that. Some success in recovering something from the site at least. The game plan was that you were going to help recover it and we would then test some bits of it for DNA. And in fact, we only ever needed a few crumbs of it, like a fragment of bone or some fur or both. And in fact, that's what you found, isn't it? Right on the the spot. And you're confident that it must have been these fragments you, you did get were exactly in situ where that carcass had been. So they must have related to that carcass. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, it was relatively short grass and it was easy enough, I suppose, to you know do, 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 do a fingertip search through that and find anything that, that was remaining. The hair, hair colour certainly matched the photographs as well in being that, that's a mid-grey colour. So, so yeah, it certainly seemed to come from that, that same carcass. Did you have any theories as to why it had coincidentally disappeared 
just before you got there, because I was worried that you were discussing it rather openly with the informant uh, in terms of the geographical location live on a Facebook group read by hundreds of people because I thought well if anybody's really near there they might think that's quite a prize of a find and so keep it quiet and get there quickly straight away. You're absolutely right and it is of course uh, entirely possible that somebody had beaten us to it and just removed it for their own interest which would be unfortunate if they'd done that and it's just disappeared as a trophy skull in someone's collection and we don't we will not learn anything more about it if that's the case. So, so it would be unfortunate if that's happened, but there's no way There's no way to tell. Yeah, it could have just been the golf course groundsman tidying up and thinking that's got to go in the skip. Um, can't have that yes. around. <laughs> the bins clearly hadn't been emptied over that week at least. So if it had been tidied up, we, we, we just don't know where it's gone. Yeah, okay. And your metal detecting skills came, you're talking about a fingertip search and all that, that's presumably something you've learnt to hone in your metal detecting work. So you were the right man for that job, perhaps. Yes, I suppose. <laughs> a sense of the hunt and uh, huh. securing evidence uh, came into it. Great, yeah. Now, did, being there and seeing the location where it was lying, did you get any sense of why a body was there, a body of a large cat? Did you think it had been run over and petered out and landed there after a sort of mortal blow? Or did you think it had been dumped? Or did you think it could have been shot and, and laid there afterwards? Or do you think it had a fight with another one and died or just petered out there? You know, Why was a body there in the open? I don't think we'll ever know quite why it was there. It was around 150 metres from, from the nearest road. Of course, there was a road leading to the golf club itself. It's possible that it could have been struck uh, and severely wounded by a car or you know, had a tangle with, with something at least its own size. We just don't know. And there wasn't really any way to tell that yeah. from, the, from the images. One of the images did show the majority of the remnants of the carcass, including the legs, so that the, the, the long limbs you'd expect from a cat were there, but they seemed intact also. Yes, great. And we must thank the informant for this, both alerting you on Facebook and then helping you. It's so frustrating that there's no clear scale reference like some keys or a foot put into the photograph. We are going on the witness's word, aren't we, that this was a large Easter egg size skull. But I think from the photos, which we will incidentally put on the, the website of, for this edition, episode 61 on the refs and links page on our website so people can see it there i think it's reasonable to say that it does look like the witness claims it does in terms of a size yes that's the, the only scale of reference we do have is his own description to say that head was about the size of a large easter egg and, and unusually large i'll help with the next bit because we then did some DNA testing. And I think when we were looking at the photos, even before you got there and, and while we'd sent the stuff away to labs, we were speculating that it, in terms of key candidates, it was and, and the scale that was described. And actually looking at the skull photo, we were going for likely links. In the early days, that's what we were speculating about. And, and that was, I think, largely based on the the reported size of skull and the colour, the colour of the fur, that mid-grey colour, which certainly was nothing like a mel melanistic <laughs> leopard coat. 
uh, and didn't quite match Puma either. And there was no clear banding going on in the court as well. Yeah, in the early days, that was our first uh, idea. Very interesting that the informant did recognise it as an unusual animal, likely cat, and then find you, because it's speculated that you wouldn't get many bodies of cats in the open because they tend to die undercover. So a lot of the sceptics and a lot of people generally say, well, where are the bodies of these cats? Well, you'd be you know, hard put to find them if they're dying undercover like most cats do. Then you're unlikely to find a, a rotted body, a, a body that's you know decayed and nature's reclaimed it. And if you do see a skull at a distance, you might you're hardly going to think, well, I must examine that because rather than the badger's skull or something, it could be a cat. It is just chance that this guy was uh, very cooperative in this. Yeah, he was perfectly happy to help us try and identify what was there. Everyone engaged in big cat research we're engaged in it in the interests of the animals and we're not keen on on hearing about anyone hunting them so the chance of examining a, a chance find carcass is pretty rare uh, when it happens and that, that's why i was keen to jump on it yeah so well done and so then uh, we did a double act on dna testing i went first you posted it to warwick university you posted a bone fragment and some fur. They were prepared to use both items if need be, but if they got a hit on the first one, there's no point in spending extra time and money on a second one. So they got Felis Silvestris. So that was the revelation. Uh, so Scottish wildcat, European wildcat, basically. And we thought, wow, that is a surprise indeed. So we did then tentatively discuss it with one key person in the wildcat community. And it was quite rightly suggested that we ought to get it retested with a lab in Edinburgh because they have a spectrum of matches of samples of hybrid Scottish wildcats, hybrid European wildcats. So we could explore this issue of potential giganticism against the matches that they've got in their referencing system. So you did the next arrangement, didn't you? Tell us about the Edinburgh lab set up. Yeah, well, well, chapter two was to uh, was take it to the, the Royal Zoological Society of Scotland labs, which are based at Edinburgh Zoo. They were very helpful. Unfortunately, lockdown delayed the process, but that was out with everyone's hands. But we did get a, a, a result in the end. Initially, they did run the sample through their usual Felis Silvestris uh, hybrid test, to which it, we were informed it scored quite low. So they weren't suggesting it was um, it was wildcat. Then they ran a mitochondrial DNA test, and it came back with the result of Felis catus stroke sylvestris. That was the result there. And so they really concluded that if you want to settle on something as sure as they can be, that it's much more in the Felis catus strain rather than the European wildcat strain, because there can be this overlap in the genetics, in the deep sort of lineage of those cats. So and Warwick are happy with this. Warwick don't want to contest this view. It seems to be some kind of domestic cat, Felis catus, with some mutation giganticism for whatever reason in it that's as far as we can conclude so it's a puzzle in itself and fascinating in itself mm -hmm. frustrating in a way but we did our best and you know thanks to those labs we got the, the scientific results in the end which of course only only threw up more questions what i found 
interesting from this, though, is from uh, the, the mapping project and collation of sightings is recognising reports where they're not reporting black cats as, as melanistic leopards or, or brown cats as puma or lynx, but grey. And these have been daylight sightings where the colours distinctly given as grey or sometimes slate grey or mid-grey. Now, are we seeing a, a pattern here? And if, if we're seeing a pattern, then what, again, what is that pattern? We still haven't maybe fully confirmed it, but it's, uh, it's interesting all the same. Yes. Well, I have to say we've had one recently within the past month in Gloucestershire, grey one. We have them occasionally in Gloucestershire, and, and, and I hear others occasionally. And you always think, oh, is that a puma, puma conchola, you know, mountain lion cougar one that is more on the grey tone than on the tan tone? But I do think, you know, we may be in for a surprise, and we were in for a surprise when we tested that one. I'm aware now of at least three, possibly four results that I've done with uh, labs, uh, or I've been exposed to the results of labs, if there haven't been me that's been asking for the test to be done, where we have seemingly this giganticism in a Felis catus result, you know, large cats, Maybe there are the size that can predate a deer, but they result in Felis catus. And I remember the first time we got that result. Very good comment back from the lab. Obviously, the lab is just doing the science. But any little sort of comments back from the lab which help nudge us towards thinking about the implications of what we're getting are helpful. And this comment was a very interesting one. The comment was... This result begs the question of the status these cats are that you're looking into. The hint there was, let's not assume that all these large cats are non-native. I think that is a very important factor to consider. I think even if they are non-native, a lot of people are saying, well, they're still functionally relevant to the ecosystem and they're not. it's not like a grey squirrel problem where you've got this really blighting species really invading the niche of others. But I think uh, that's a very cute observation that, um, well, if we've got these homegrown, large, for some reason, Felis catus cats that, that are predating our deer or big enough to kill deer, what's going on? I'm not saying that that's what these big black ones are mainly. I do think the majority of large black ones people are describing and hearing sometimes the vocalisation of black leopards, melanistic leopards. But I think there's enough doubt about some of the other sightings and some of the results we're getting now to say, right, it's, you know, it's a messy picture. Yes, if, if anything, it's muddied the waters a little more just when we're, when we're trying to make things simpler for ourselves. Yeah, but I suppose an absolute sceptic might say, well, here you are, Rick and Paul, you're just being terribly gullible because that cat was probably just a slightly larger than usual one that you've recovered and you're just going by the informant's statement that it was a super large one. So there's that in it as well, but I do think it's very reasonable to assume he was correct. He wasn't supposing a, a scale from from a distance as as a lot of sightings are. Um, he was standing right next to it. He was he was standing over it and photographing it. It was that close enough to the evidence to be quite clear on on scale. And if he'd just come across a moggy, he wouldn't have bothered informing you and um, alerting you and, and going to the bother of helping you recover it. 
that's what we have to say about the body of Bannockburn. And in a way, the more samples we get, the better of anything. You know, this is a numbers game. More sightings, more toothpick results, more DNA results, more camera trap results. All the, the trend information will give us more clues as to what's going on. So at least we're on the case. And yeah, well, well done, Paul. I think you and the, your Facebook group and, and that guy deserve huge credit for getting that there and the, and the labs. And I think the relationship with the labs doing this testing is important as well because they're picking up things to look for as they come into future work with us. So very important to keep that. I think it's healthy to spread testing across labs, but to keep the relationship with you know a certain set of labs so they're alert to the issues. Yeah, they did a great job and they were entirely helpful throughout the process. Now, next on our list, Paul, you relatively recently found some more very good, it seems, potentially very good toothpick samples. So could you tell us about the situation when you recovered those? Yeah, this was fairly recently. Maybe it was just a, a couple of months ago now. This has come about through the results we're finding now of the, the mapping process of, of mapping sightings, especially some of the more recent ones. We started to narrow down where we thought the most likely habitat for a local big cat family was. And we started to explore that area. And it was quite a bit of forested area to, to cover. The first day out there and doing that, of course, you go out with high hopes, <laughs> expecting to find a, a concentration of fresh kills and uh, you know be right on the case. But of course, that never happens. We did find only the remains of one carcass, but it, it was only on looking closer at it, it looked much more interesting. Now, we knew we were in the right area in that we have a concentration of sightings around us. We have one report of the carcass of a roe deer up a tree in this same stretch of edge of forest beside the river. So we know there's been activity in recent months and years. This one carcass, we say carcass, it was bones in a concentrated spot. We started looking for tooth pitting, which is something we, we do now since, uh, I can't remember which episode it was, Rick, but you, you had an excellent episode that discussed the importance, significance of tooth pitting and looking for the triangular pitting of carnassial teeth. That's something we, we always make an effort now to do. Episode nine. Episode nine. We always look for the, it was said, the, the scapula, bones and pelvic girdle. And right enough on these, we were finding some quite clear signs of carnassial tooth pitting, distinct triangular pits. But it was on closer examination of the, the mandible the lower jaw, that we saw something really suggestive of big cat kill. And that was puncture marks either side of uh, what's called the angle of the mandible, where it changes angle abruptly. Right there, either side, there were puncture marks from the outside pressing in that had shattered the outer layer and had pierced the inner layer below, clearly sharp teeth. There are only roe deer in that area. There are no red deer. The mandible was larger than a, a roe deer. So it, it could only in that area have been sheep. But then the more interesting aspect is that this was not an area where you grazed sheep. It was beside the river. It was in kind of rougher land. And the nearest field where there are still sheep occasionally was about 300 metres uphill. 
So this was looking even more interesting in that it looked as though it had come from that field. We couldn't see any other way a sheep could have accessed that ground. It looked as though, in fact, it had potentially been dragged down from the uphill field uh, to this spot, which was a secluded spot. Yeah, the, the signs of pitting were you know, certainly along the lines of big cat kill and predation. Well done. Very good. And it was your dots on the map from the mapping process and the, and the reporting that we'll come on to in a minute, which led you there. You hadn't been told by a farmer or a local person to look at X spot for big cat evidence. It was just your, your mapping data led you there. Is that right? Absolutely correct. This was entirely the results of identifying um, concentrations and patterns of movement over time. Very, very good. And uh, two things about the tooth pits bone samples you've got. Uh, could we have photos of them on the website for this episode so people can see? Is that possible? Yes, I'll certainly send them on. Yeah, lovely. I think I have seen them, Paul, but I, I um, just want to establish that we can use them. That's great. And uh, if you can lend them at least to Royal Agricultural University, obviously uh, the, they've got uh, it's term time starting any day and mm-hmm. uh, they will be recruiting new students to help in the lab with Professor Andrew Hemming's work on the toothpits. More samples, the better, obviously, because it makes a more robust um, overall case for big cats being around predating uh, sheep deer and wild boar and whatever and Mm -hmm. uh, different geographical locations again makes it a more rigorous database so if they could have a look obviously they've got to be you know verified they will get the digital calipers and the and the high power microscope and forensically test these toothpits to see if the triangle pattern does match the triangular shaped pattern cusps of the back carnassial tooth of a leopard or puma or lynx size cat but if you can expose them to that process that would be great yep that would be no problem lovely and we'll keep people posted on that one so I think now you've given us a hint and you partly answered the next point about your sightings and mapping you have really, in the last 18 months, accelerated the work about networking with people, gathering more help yourself to network and interview informants and visit informants, and you're mapping the results. It's working, isn't it? You are getting willing people reporting stuff, and you're finding it useful. Yeah, yeah. It's starting to yield results now. I think it's essential, in fact, that researchers get out there to make the contacts I think a lot of witnesses, they see something completely out of the ordinary that, you know, forces a, a shift in perspective of the world view of our environment and what's out there. And they don't want to be thought crazy. And they want to report that to somewhere where it can be taken seriously. So at the moment, I think it's really just down to dedicated researchers to make the efforts in collating sightings and such to do that i think you, you you have to get your name out there as a point of contact and hope you'll be trusted and seen as somebody responsible and it's not just you because i know you've got a very helpful network of support people people are obviously trusting you and wanting to help you gather that bigger picture by collecting the data it's interesting to be you know, in a position where you're telling people you're not crazy 
people often say, oh, I didn't want to tell my family or friends at work, you know, because it was so unusual. In fact, to reassure people that actually, you know, it, it is a phenomenon. There are big cats being sighted regularly throughout the country. It does reassure them. Yeah. I must stress that um, people like you and me could sometimes be judged to be gullible and believing any old thing, but you are still giving your own scrutiny of what's coming forward. You're not sort of believing every witness all the time, presumably. You do have to judge every report, I suppose, uh, on its own merits. Yeah, we'll come on to that in a minute because we've got some questions that we've invited a very good researcher on Facebook, Shelley Coles, to put to us, and I think you're having first go at them in a minute. We'll come on to that, the credibility of witness statements in a second. Yeah. One of the trends you've got in the way that the mapping data is um, coming together is you're seeing river corridor routes become indicated. Is that right? Yeah, it has been possible over time to start to see the patterns of movement. One main area that we're seeing is the riparian corridors or the transitions from the land to rivers where there's natural cover there's a great biodiversity going on there that provides an easy larder that's one area we're seeing and of course um, these have been reported all over the country uh, sightings along disused railway lines so areas where there's you know hard access and, and, and paths connecting green areas over a wide area we're seeing them use these routes as well yeah Thank you for introducing what we're going to use as word of the week just now, riparian. I've just looked it up, Paul, because I've always assumed it meant river corridor, riverside. It actually literally means river bank, but actually I think it tends to get used for the river corridor zone. And that's what you mean, isn't it, by your use of the word riparian? Riparian can take in that whole transition from the land to, to the water and everything in between. Repairing corridors are unquestionably a natural habitat that we're seeing. You can literally track sightings to one side and the other of the corridors for quite some mileage. That was quite clear to see from the mapping. You'd only see from that overall aerial perspective as well once you, once you gather in the sightings. It is starting to show up habitats and patterns of movement over time. Are you feeding this information back? When you've mapped it, the informants and the landowners and local witnesses, are they seeing it so they can see where their little bit is in the bigger picture? Or do you brief them on it so that they keep involved? Because I think that is important to keep that awareness raising, the potential for them to give you further information, for them to think, wow, you know, what I provided was useful. I do say to every witness that comes forward with the report that their sighting helps build the, the bigger picture. The bigger picture is joining the dots. You know, every dot becomes important in that. I'm very careful, though, as to how far that mapping is circulated, and I'm very keen only to circulate that mapping strictly amongst researchers and witnesses, for obvious reasons. Confidentiality. There are the names of witnesses on there, and of course, exact locations as well. Yeah, sure. I also think unless you've got explanations and interpretations of it, if somebody just looks at it cold and believes the results, which not everybody would, of course, 
It could be quite alarmist and inflammatory to some people. Say you, one exposed a sort of a big database of sightings on a website and, and somebody like estate agents looked at them. And mm-hmm. now some people think, oh, that's exciting. I'm going to move there. I'm going to look for houses in that particular area because I think it's really exciting and I want the chance of seeing a big cat. <laughs> Other people might think, no way. Wow, that's um, pretty edgy to think about living on that location on the edge of the Forest of Dean or wherever. It just comes with so many pitfalls, doesn't it? It's so messy and awkward. One interesting side that's come up as well is to see how many sightings, in fact, are, are relatively close to the urban fringes. It's something not everyone expects, but it's it's relatively commonplace, particularly Midlothian and Peeblesshire areas, which is where we've focused first on the, the sighting reports. I quite accept that. But what I would say is that we are prone to the observer effect. You can only get sightings where there are people. And to some extent, uh-huh. the, the sightings data will be skewed by where there are bigger concentrations of people, either residentially or visiting localities. So you know, we're, ne- we're never going to get sightings reported in places where the cats are, but there's nobody there to see them. Yes, that's true. Any kind of biological recording of mammals that have to be seen is prone to that. That was something we, we recognise the same from um, my background in, in military intelligence, which is where the whole mapping concept came from. In intelligence reserves, we were used to mapping battle spaces where you're determining patterns of movement of military hardware. So it's, it's identifying tanks rather than cats. <laughs> that's really really much the only difference is to what we're doing now but you only identify those elements where you have the surveillance capabilities whether that's on the ground or in the air or such so yeah it's the same same sort of thing it's an inherent bias but you've got to put up with it and recognize it yes following on that kind of theme we deliberately invited shelley coles who's an active person on facebook Thank you, Shelley, for the questions coming up. And she's put three points. I think the first one I'm going to help answer. The next ones, next two, are mainly for you. But So her first point about taking information from witnesses is this question. How do you judge whether a sighting or witness is credible? And or do you record everything reported to you, even if it is questionable? You go first from your experience. Mm Mm-hmm. That is a good question because you you do have to take every single report and judge it on its own merits entirely. There have been reports I've received that I haven't deemed substantial enough, uh, let's say, in in, in the evidence to be worth mapping. It becomes a bit easier the more detail you get. If someone has had quite a close encounter where they're clearly describing the height, the length, the shape of the tail and so on, then obviously it becomes easier to accept and that will go in the map. Not every sighting, I would say, has gone on the map. You do have to judge individually. Yes, I think also, say that you've got 10 dots or quite a few dots in one area. Okay, two of them may be a bit more questionable, but the fact that you've got 10, you think, well, actually, you know, there's more chance that credibly something going on there. Whereas if you've only got one or two dots in an area, well, they both could be dubious or questionable or flaky. So yeah. Some of the dots we've got on the map, especially in areas where we have concentrations of cat sightings, will also record carcasses, rodeo carcasses particularly. That can feed into patterns of movement where sightings have been determined anyway, but we won't record individual carcasses if we don't 
have sighting surrounding that, for example. But they're carcasses that you've judged tick boxes for likely cat predation? Yes. There was a number of carcasses appearing over quite a short time that happened to coincide with big cat sightings in the same area. So that would be an example as to where we would map those because they could be useful for patterns of movement. But um, otherwise, we wouldn't usually do that. So potential reinforcing factors like a deer carcass. Okay. Yes. I'll just say a few things which I look for for reinforcing witnesses' credibility and see if you pick these up. I suspect you do, and it'd be interesting to know to what extent you're picking them up. Some of these are just visual, but some of them are incidents where there's some activity going on and the observer and the informant was involved in it, not just visually, but sensing something. Mm -hmm. That's why I like to call them encounters more often. I would say about 20% of the reports I've had, and I've had up to nearly 1,400 now over the years, including at rural shows, where I'm speaking with the people for often for half an hour or more, you know, eyeballing them and sensing their conviction and their emotion. But around 20% involve a dog or a horse with the witness who has reacted as well in a very unusual way, often in a spooked and edgy way, a nervous way. And I Mm. think that's a very strong reinforcing factor because it shows that it's not just the human being that is seeing something or sensing something out of the ordinary, but so is the animal with them. Do you pick that up in your uh, records as well? Yes, absolutely. Sometimes do. And yeah, again, it's it's going on what you know has happened in that area as well. That That is a factor as to whether you decide to map it or not. An example would be one of a, a witness we know who's clearly seen Big Cat before, but he's also reported in, in one occasion, he, he was walking beside a, a certain stretch of woods and, and, and river, and his dog suddenly senses something. They hear a crashing through the rotted engines in the opposite bank. Anyone reporting out the blue, you think that's probably a deer. It could have been, but with a sighting just a couple of nights before in that immediate area and other sightings around, and this is a fellow who's seen a big cat before and kind of knows the signs and what, what he's looking for and how his dog's going to react, then you tend to take that a bit more seriously. I can remember one like that. I was following one up with a couple of colleagues on some land in Gloucestershire and about two days after the most recent sighting, and we heard exactly that kind of crashing, that nimble but heavy animal darting off through the woodland not far from us and the horse in the uh, in the corner field right by us was really edgy and making a sort of snorty warning sign through, through its nostrils we can't prove it was big cat but we did assume together that that was likely the big cat was still around it had spooked the horse without any context we wouldn't have really made such a conclusion it was still a tentative conclusion i might uh, stress but Two more I'm going to go for to help answer Shelley's first question about credibility. The other one is proximity. Now, some of these reports are so close, they're almost immediately in front of the person. The animal is absolutely within five metres of them or closer, either the other side of their car windscreen or sometimes not, sometimes in in the open. Remember, say, second half of episode one on this podcast series, John on the edge of Dursley encountered two pumas right up front and they they turned a corner uh, just metres ahead of him looking to go for a domestic cat which was spooked away through a small gap in the fence. They couldn't get to it so they went to a larger gap. Now he was right on top of them. He was extremely nervous as they sort of stopped there and 
sat down and waited for him to pass and ignored his shouting at them. You know, mm-hmm. he, he's either lying or it's, you know, he did indeed see, have a close encounter with two, you know, as he thinks, adult-sized mountain lions, pumas, cougars on the edge of a market town. We, we have had similar proximity sightings uh, in Scotland, in, in Midlothian, um, where you have, you know, quite, quite a wee road network uh, going through the green and um, a good number of sightings in the early hours of people driving and, and, and uh, cats crossing, but, but several of those have been very close to their cars. One where they had to put on the brakes to, you know, to avoid, avoid hit, hitting it, and it then moved uh, along the front of the car and along the side, the passenger side of the car. They were in a, a small sports car. I didn't get the make of the car to uh, confirm <laughs> confirm height, but the passenger, the, the female, female passenger, said that it seemed to be about the same height as the car to the head. Well, I suppose a low sports car, that's possible, isn't it? Yes, it, it is possible. But, I mean, that proximity and, and that scaling against what they're sitting in at the time certainly tells you it's something something way more than a moggy. Exactly. Yeah, sure. One of the other points I'd make is you mentioned about the description, you know, so we're looking for boxes to tick like, you know, rounded ears if it's a black leopard type one, which, you know, people wouldn't know. People are faithfully recording and noting key features, distinctive features of uh, of leopards, you know, which they wouldn't know about. The high shoulder blades, the way the, the shoulder blades sort of really jut out yeah. as they move along, and the extended long body and the long tubular tail, the big padding feet. Yeah, so all of those sorts of things, which you think, well, if they're making this up or if they're exaggerating, you know, you don't really pick those things up. Those are subtle points of detail. They do help ticking the boxes. But I think another one is attitude and this point about, um, a bit like John with those two pumas, that totally ignored him when he shouted at at them closer. Mm. Disdain, you know, the sort of dismissive attitude that they have because they're in control. There's a nonchalance about that type of attitude, yeah. Yeah, and again, that is coming across quite consistently from people. So mm-hmm. I think that's an important one, the disdain, the dismissive attitude, and the arrogance. And But then the fact that they can melt away. A classic one I had of the disdain or the where the sort of cat is, is giving the vibes that I'm in control and so you better leave. It was a lady, I think I mentioned it with Jay and Rhoda in a Cornwall quarry. This was a reporter at a rural show and she said she was on a walk with a dog going down into one of the um, the quarries in Cornwall on the edge of the China clay area and she said she was terrified because her dog was a bit ahead of her and then suddenly sitting up out of the scrub was this huge black panther. She thought, I'm totally exposed here. The dog is even closer and we're for it. And she said that the cat sort of sat up and gave them a glare. And she said all the vibes were, this isn't convenient, you know, beat it. There doesn't need to be an incident, but I'm going to win if there is sort of thing. She, (laughs) She said it was just the message that she got from that cat was so impressive, so dignified, but... It meant business if it needed to. And again, all of those, you know, you you do get those from the people. You think those are quite cute observations that are coming through. Together with all the description and the situation, that is why I call them encounters rather than sightings, largely. So, yeah, there's all of that and more, really. So so thank you to Shelley for that. I hope that partly answers the question. So second one, second question that Shirley had was, and this is mu- these next ones are far more for you, Paul. So 
Question two. How far do you feel that your methods of recording and mapping sightings correspond with those used in other regions? And or how much do you work with other researchers on recording and mapping? So Scotland in comparison to elsewhere, and are you networking with other people? In fact, Paul, we have, you and I just did discuss this in the past. When you first got going, we actually thought that at some stage it might be worth you chatting to the Southern Scotland Biological Records Centre because they would be taking and assimilating data of other mammal recording. And eventually, when this gets more mainstreamed, maybe we should expose all of this system to the biological record centers and just treat it like mapping any other mammals but obviously we're breaking ground initially but uh mm-hmm. so, so that's the ultimate perhaps but in terms of you just swapping notes with other people doing it are you uh, do you do that and are you noticing any parallels i've not to date worked with any other researchers on mapping i haven't been aware of any other mapping project for big cats in scotland to work with that way there was a, a website a big cat scotland website with a good number of collated reports covering decades on it that's been very useful to link in with and map some of those reports. Initially, the focus was the more immediate area around here, Midlothian and Peebleshire areas. That's been very productive. But now I'm starting to expand the mapping out to cover pretty much all of Scotland. So it is quite ambitious, but and it's going to be a long-term project at that. And I can only feed in at the moment, of what historical sightings we can come across online. It's always an ongoing, growing project, of course. Every new uh, report that comes in will be from someone that, that's either either seen something themselves or, or they're reporting of a sighting they know of. Uh, and often you'll find, if someone has seen a cat, quite often they'll hear of somebody that's heard of reports in their area, and we can you know ask witnesses to follow up on that and provide more leads it's constantly expanding in itself that way and of course there has been some historically some good work in scotland you know there have been previous sort of web-based groups that have done very good work in scotland in the past they all seem to be petered out you've got a legacy there to build on that was very helpful at first to establish a base of sightings in the local areas to go on and then it's been as much down to getting out there knocking on farmers' doors <laughs> and asking strange questions. And being thick-skinned, because sometimes, presumably, you do meet a bit of um, people are puzzled or suspicious or just think you're an annoyance. You've got to be prepared for all of that, I guess. Yeah, of course. You don't know exactly the characters of who you're approaching to begin with. It has been productive. There was one farmer locally I spoke to. He said, oh, yes, you know, he'd been aware of sightings and told me that on one occasion his two dogs chased off a sizable big black cat off a field and he got a very clear view of it in daylight as the two dogs chased off a cat that was larger than them, the collies he had. And he told me which direction it bolted off, which was useful as well, because that also tied in with other sightings in that area too. That kind of behaviour, very useful to know. Okay, final point from... Shelley is. Have you noticed any particular trends or differences that apply to Scotland more than other regions, e.g. types of cats seen, types of terrain for reports or characteristics of witnesses? To be honest, I think we're seeing the same types of habitats here as we are throughout the rest of the UK. We're seeing established corridors such as disused railway lines, 
active railway lines as well, riparian corridors we've spoken about as well. We seem to see these all over the UK as, as normal habitats for them. So I don't think we're seeing anything different necessarily. We do have some vast expanses of remote areas such as the Cairngorm mountain range and there are reports on the periphery where earlier you said that if we're only getting sightings where people are and that is on the periphery of the vast expanses. So there, there may be more in these uh, more remote areas than we know. Yes, sure. Although I have to say, I don't think the cats particularly like hostile, severe environments because you know they're hostile and severe for a cat as well as for a human being. And so in those rugged areas of landscape, I think it's the tight sort of wooded valleys where the deer might be as well that the cats are going to sort of use as a refuge. So to fully answer Shelley's question, do you think there's any scotland distinction in this in in what you're getting in the information you're getting even amongst witnesses i also don't think we've got anything distinctively scottish about the types of sightings we we have up here because we really have the same type of terrain we find throughout the rest of the uk it can just be a bit more concentrated and condensed <laughs> and hilly in some areas other than that i think we're finding the the same types of habitats and the same type of people coming forward Well, thank you to Shelley for those questions. I hope that is a reasonable stab at them. And in fact, I'm going to sort of extend it now to say to you, Paul, how do you personally assess the progress you've been making on this recording and um, information finding and mapping? What kind of progress, what kind of issues is it throwing up beyond what we've heard already? And, you know, some overview points from you. Some of the issues when we receive fresh reports is you're always getting there if you're if you're following up on a report and you're going out in the field to look for prints or such you're always arriving after the event you're always getting there after something's happened so you're looking for that scant trace of evidence if it's there if the ground's not too dry there's always ifs and you're never guaranteed results of course so It is a bit of a needle in a haystack. It feels that way at times. But when you make finds of a carcass up a tree, let's say, or um, toothpicking that's right, you know, a kill that shows all the signs or a, a reasonable print, then it is worthwhile. Even if it's a small thing, it's another little bit that feeds into that big picture. And that's in the long run, I think, what we're all we're all looking for. We're all looking for that good evidence. Of course, everyone wants the, the 10 out of 10 picture or footage. And that would certainly, off the back of mapping, narrowing the ground, putting the trail cameras in the right spots and getting that result would be certainly, I, I would say, that that would justify the mapping fully that it works and it's, it's certainly worth doing. And I think even to date, I think it's been worth doing and that we're we feel as though we're at that stage where the, the concentrations have been identified, the habitats been identified, patterns of movement have been identified, and we feel as though we're closing in. We need to make efforts in three different locations at the moment. We're from there hoping to deploy some trail cameras out in the right places in the hopes of recovering something a bit more interesting. So that, that that's where it's all leading to. <laughs> There's always hardships in the way in doing that. Yeah, it is a slog, isn't it? 
strikes me also that the way you're going about it uh, very purposefully, diligently and systematically, that any informant or witness that you're following up with, they're going to think these people really are, they mean business. You know, I'm providing information and it's relevant. It's all helping. You really are putting it in a bigger context and trying to use it to learn and to investigate more. We're not taking the approach that we'll just go out in the weekend with a pair of binoculars and sit in a hill and hope to see something. It's a long-term project. These animals have been seen quite clearly in our environment for, for decades. The nature of the sightings are so chance and fleeting often that that's perhaps the best we could hope for. We have to take a long-term approach to this, and, and we do have to be diligent. You know, and, and every little detail of evidence counts in doing that. Okay. And your your point about being late on the scene, you know, after the event, I always think about that when I'm setting up a trail camera on a new, the new landowner, property owner. I think it's vital and important to do so. But I'm always thinking, you know, well, we're pretty certain that the cat's been here, but when, if ever, is it going to come back? And is this an absolute futile exercise? But you've got to do it. Absolutely. We've been there and done that as well. We had two trail cameras sitting up on a, a run, an animal run that we we had a very clear sighting from. This is quite locally to myself in the borders here. The fellow had seen it quite close in front of his car, another close encounter, if you like, where it ran across the road, it ran up the opposite bank. He said it seemed to know where it was going because it didn't just run up to the fence. It ran to the corner of the field where the usual animal run is. So we thought, of course, well, this must be a regular run for it. We had cameras sitting there for the best part of a year and nothing other than, you know, some amazing shots of roe deer, squirrels and pheasants, the usual suspects, but absolutely nothing. And dog walkers but nothing out of the ordinary at all, which made us realise this perhaps might be the only time that cat's been here, or maybe it passes once a year or every two years. It made it clear it wasn't a regular run. And I think we can only determine the paths and routes of regular run by finding the concentrations that way. That's where the mapping starts to pay off. Sure. No, I quite accept that. I also, and I know other people, get reports of where the landowner or the property owner says it knew where it was going. You know, I think it's done that route before. Mm-hmm. They're so purposeful. And if they know where the sort of gap in the hedge is or the hole in the fence is, you think, well, hang on, it must have done that before because it went straight for it. Mm-hmm. Unless it's you know sensing the mammal trail and scenting the mammal trail, so it's following the mammal trail, then they all go through that anyway. But I do yeah. feel we don't know about the interval of the visit. That is the problem. So you just said you had trail cameras up for a year and nothing happened. Now, coincidentally, I have had a call today from some horse stables that uh, last had an incident about 18 months, nearly two years ago, that they knew about. The cat may have been back since, but they said all hell mm. was kicking off last night. And can I phone them to discuss? And I'm the only one who goes to check the cameras there, and it's quite a way off. Uh, but mm-hmm. that, I would say, you know, that there's no known recorded activity there for almost two years. Intervals have varied before then. So we never know, do we? I'm a great believer in once I put a camera up in a place that seems to be a general 
zone of cat activity, I will just leave the cameras there for as long as I can. You know, obviously try and uh, make sure that they're changed every two or three months uh, if the battery should just about last that, if they're set on photo burst and give yourself a chance but also keep in touch with the landowner and visit the landowner if they want some kind of reassurance or second opinion if they've got issues on their land because of the cats but yeah it's that interval that we never know and i think it can vary it's a waiting game isn't it yeah we're petering out paul thank you very much for all of this update so important and useful for us all to hear we're going to talk about Larkhill very quickly in a minute because that's going to be our next guest. We're just going to have a sort of finish with a, a 10 minutes from Derek, who's property owner at Larkhill, where they had this bit of footage, which, of course, people are very split on. Well, get your take on Larkhill right at the end. But finally, is there anything else you want to say that you want to convey to us before we leave off? I would ask anyone that um, feels as though they, they're interested in getting involved and in researching a bit more, a bit more than uh, than enjoying the Facebook groups, which which are great in themselves. But mm. it's getting out in the field and you know making the efforts in the areas where you you know there are uh, sightings or activity is important uh, in making finds. I would encourage anyone that is interested in doing that to really just do it just to get out there in the areas where you know they are. And and if you have the confidence enough to knock on doors and ask about local sightings and find out more, it's about getting out there and doing it. And the the more people we have actively researching, the better, I think. And if if anyone is already doing that and hasn't already made contact with us through the group, I'd love love to hear from. So a recruiting message for Scotland, basically. Yes, why not? Let's uh, draw our forces together and make some bigger efforts, yeah. Well, good luck with that, and I I hope we do have some listeners getting in touch with you as a result of that. Okay, Larkall, um, is that how we're pronouncing this town in south-east of Glasgow, is that right? Uh, Larkall, yeah, Larkall. Yeah. Now, you had a puma sighting from there last year, is that right? Yes, in fact, I can confirm from the mapping there are a couple of good daylight, clear sightings of uh, adult puma around the environments of Lark Hall. Yep. Okay, so we got this rather dark and grainy image of a cat in a front garden. As we're speaking, about two months ago, it went all over the press. It started locally and then went national. And the sort of view was... This is possibly a big cat on a path to the side of a fence, or is it a bit of an illusion? And it's a domestic cat on the top, and so it's the perspective is fooling us because the domestic cat is closer than we think, making it look big. It's actually tucked up onto the top of the fence. Now, you have been exposed to both views, and you've done as much analysis as you can with the footage, and you're concluding it is a big cat like a puma, perhaps on the side path next to the fence. So try and convince us then, Paul. Yeah. At first, when I saw the footage, I also thought, oh, yeah, yeah, that looks like a cat on top of the fence. It was when the the owner of the footage said, it's not on the fence, it's in the garden beside it, that made me sit up and look at it much more closely again. Apparently, there'd been some evidence of digging or scraping an earth in part of that garden that morning, that same morning. And when you look very closely at the footage, at the start of the footage, the cat is something like a 45 degree angle close to the fence. You can tell, in fact, from stills 
there that it's not it's not on the fence by the where the the back of the body is and in fact it looks like you can see the rear leg on the grass in that garden at the start of it that's a still photo isn't it from the video we'll put that on the website under this episode so people can make their mind up i suppose that the counter case to that is it's so low resolution isn't it the footage it seems to vibrate and it's so difficult to determine where the the feet are touching the ground or the top of the fence so i can see both sides of the argument the argument to say that that is incorrect what you've just said it would be that that still footage screenshot has been taken while the image is vibrating and you're not seeing and the fence sort of moves in that vibration the top of the fence actually and so it's gone lower it's just that distorted view you're getting in that particular screenshot. I don't think it settled it personally, Paul, but I I hear your case. I absolutely get that it is low-resolution footage and it doesn't help us clarify detail, but the owners of the footage did manage to send me a piece of footage of a cat on the fence, a domestic cat on the fence, for direct comparison. Conveniently enough, the cat was pretty much in the same relative position on the screen where you first see it standing approximately 45 degrees to the the fence. And the difference in positions of the body, and in particular the head, the front of the cat and the head, as to where that really has to be if a cat is on the fence, it leaves you pretty convinced that it's not on the fence, it is in the garden. Yeah. In a way, the only thing that matters is what the property owners think about it. It's all a talking point for us, isn't it? It's, if, if it's influenced those property owners to think that there's a cat around and they may want to take precautions about letting their pets out or neighbours letting their pets out at night, that's it. You know, That's all that matters. Who, who's been influenced to what effect? I would suggest that the vicinity of clear sightings of adult puma around that area and the fact that the specific location was also, again, right on the fringe, right in the urban fringe next to the green expanse is another indication that it fits with patterns of movement and sighting over decades, really. Yeah, so you know a bit about the background and context to help your thoughts on that. Paul, I think we're going to sign off there and thank you and applaud your terrific efforts. I know you're speaking for a, a network, your Facebook group. I know you've got great help running your Facebook group and you know wider network of people. We've got episodes coming up which you've helped us prepare for with uh, intriguing situations that we'll hear about. So more anon from Scotland. But meantime, Paul, I want to thank you very much for being the guest on episode 61 of Big Cat Conversations. Absolute pleasure, Rick. Thanks very much for having us on again. And, uh, you know, is is making contacts uh, with interesting folk like yourself. <laughs> that, is, that is a big bonus, really, as to being involved in this fascinating world. Well, we're all learning on it, aren't we, and swapping notes, and uh, we'll keep at it. (laughs) Every day's a school day. (laughs) Absolutely, yeah. For our next guest, we are joined by Derek from Larkall. We just discussed briefly with Paul about the incident in August 2021, just gone, when a cat of some description was caught on a security camera in a front garden in Larkall and we're going to speak to the property owner Derek who joins us now. Derek thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Yes it's just a a ring doorbell camera. I woke up and checked it in the morning and I'm like what is this? 
in my neighbour's garden here, you know. I normally just go through it to see if anything's been going on at the front door or that, but this particular morning, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. I just didn't know what it was. As you know, people are split on whether it is a cat on the fence or a large cat on the path beside the fence. I thought it was our garden. I still think it was. And it was just the size of it when I seen it. I was kind of blown away by it. Had you ever seen, incidentally, at night, a domestic cat on the fence on that camera? It was the next day there were a cat on it. It looked very small compared to what I've seen. And it was nowhere near the size of that one that we seen at night. Your reckoning of it being on the path beside, how are you justifying that? Because it's difficult to tell, although I think we've got one screenshot from the video, haven't we, where the legs do seem to be separate from the top of the fence. Yes. I suppose the the sceptics would say, well, that's because the video is vibrating because it's low resolution. That screenshot is caught while the fence has gone lower. So it's not perfect, but... You're the key people that matter. In a way, it doesn't matter what any of my contacts mm-hmm. think, really, because you, you're the one who has to deal with it. What did you reckon from the feedback you got from friends and neighbours? Did they all agree with you, or did you get some people challenging your view that it was a big cat? My family and friends were... They definitely looks like a big cat, but the feedback for the papers and that are obviously different. You get a lot of people on making a fully in that. Obviously, they don't know me, but we were as confused as anything else. We were just want to know what it was, you know what I mean? Because it is intriguing, isn't it? A big cat like that, if it's a mountain lion puma, something like that, it's got the whole of the wilds of Scotland to roam in, and it chooses uh-huh. your neighbour's garden in your residential area. That's what we were thinking as well. Is there any catnip or is there any anything that might draw in a cat, a big cat, if it was a big cat, in the garden? I don't really know what they eat. Or up the park, there's a lot of rabbits up the park, but I don't know. Well, they certainly would eat rabbits, certainly, and deer and foxes and neighbours, unfortunately, domestic cats and pet cats mm-hmm. if they get the chance, perhaps. Yeah, so was there any other circumstances that made people suspicious did anybody's dog suddenly bark in the night for a suspicious noise or was there any scratching in your neighbour's garden or anything like that i go out and cut the grass regular and i get into my neighbours just to cut up the side of my fence and under her garden she doesn't stay in there a lot it's overgrown and after that i looked at it i'm like how's that all flat as if Something had been clawing, clawing it up. It's, it was just totally flat. And then there was nothing there. I'm, I'm like to myself, could this have been this big cat? Everything goes through your head, you don't know. Nobody's dog sounded off at night, that night. I was in the hospital, but my wife never heard that. The, the dog barking at her. When I woke up in the hospital, I checked the camera and I flipped my wife. What did you make of the feedback in the papers? How was it to have you and your front neighbours' gardens in the national papers' websites and all this comment on it? What did that feel like? You can't really tell my garden through that picture. That's how I was kind of wary, but 
At the end of the day, I'm just wanting to find out whether it was uh, the same as everybody else. Everybody's got their opinion. And I know the, the camera is no great at night, but it definitely doesn't look like a domestic cat to me, but it's other people to judge, isn't it? I don't think perhaps we'll ever conclude it. I suppose what you have learnt from Paul McDonald, who runs the Facebook site, or helps run the Facebook site that Julie, your wife, contacted, there have been sightings of very large cats like the uh, sandy grey coloured puma, they're also called mountain lion or cougar. You know, Larkhall has had a couple of those sightings, uh, one earlier uh-huh. this year. It may be a surprise, but you do get them nearby. That must have been quite a shock in itself to learn that. Yes, it was. And uh, we even went to the police because when we thought it was a, a big cat, it's kind of dangerous if you're at the night walking about, but they were trying to make a fool of us, put milk out and see if it will come back, they said. Uh, they didn't take it seriously, did they? No, they just said, put a bowl of milk out and see if it will come back. Oh gosh, okay, you must have caught some of them on a bad day then. It's interesting because police that you know I have contact with do take these things seriously and will, if they believe the witness has got a credible incident to report, they will give them some kind of help or, or signpost them on to people like me or whatever. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's a shame that happened. Say it definitely was a big cat and somebody was intent on shooting it, how would that make you feel? Yeah, I wouldn't like that <laughs> They've got their own life to live as well, you know. Maybe it's just straight for whatever it was. And, but I definitely wouldn't wish any harm on it. But nobody in the neighbourhood that you know of has had their pet cats go missing or anything like that? No, that I know of. No, no, that I know of. So if it was a big cat, it didn't cause any bother in the neighbourhood anyway? No, that I'm aware of, no. Okay. It's very good, Derek, that you did share it with us. It's a talking point. I know, you know, we haven't resolved it and there's um, heated arguments as to what size cat it is and I don't think we'll ever settle that. I've actually got new cameras fitted in their colour at night, so if it comes back, I'll definitely catch it on these. That is good thinking, yeah. Well, hopefully that's worth it anyway because you've got a better security camera. Yeah, <laughs> Well, we'll have you back on to um, gloat at the disbelievers then. Yes, I would gladly do that. Okay. If it comes back, let's hope it behaves itself. Yes, I hope so. Yes, because we had one in Kent in a front garden and a lady was out checking for her domestic cats late at night and uh, one arrived in her garden right next to her and she had a lot of catnip. She said it sniffed the air, so maybe it was the smell of the catnip that drew it in. Yes. But she said the neighbours and her do reckon it might have been on the lookout for the foxes. Just shows you. But she said it didn't touch her. She said it left as suddenly as it arrived and looked up as her as if to say, what are you doing? (laughs) (laughs) That's it, looking for the foxes. That was one of these big black panther types. She's got great respect for it as a result and said what a beautiful animal it was, even though she was terrified at the time. (laughs) Yes, I have been a bit scared myself. Well, I mean, it is literally a few feet from the front door, isn't it, the way the camera caught it? Yes, it's right at my front fence. You're talking maybe three or four feet. What I thought was in the neighbour's garden, the other side of the fence. And you scaled it, say it was the big cat, 
along that path, you could scale that by aligning it with the paving slabs, couldn't you? Yeah. So that would make it a sort of puma-sized cat, that sort of thing. Okay, well, very intriguing because, you know, we're normally on this podcast here from people who've, you know, seen one directly from their car or out walking or with their dog or something. So Uh this one is just a puzzle, isn't it? You know, A, can we be entirely sure? And B, you know, what was it doing? And C, will it come back at at any time? Uh It'll be also interesting to see if the Scotland Big Cat Sightings Facebook group get any more reports from Larkel in the future. We'll watch this space. We'll keep an eye out, and if we hear anything, we'll certainly get back to you and let you know with better pictures, hopefully. Yeah, lovely. Also, if the new camera, the better camera, does get a domestic cat at night on the fence, in a way, that's something else you can look at and make a judgment on, isn't it? I certainly is. Well, Derek, very good of you to brief us and listeners on this. I'm sure everybody will be very interested. It's an interesting case, and a lot of people would have looked at it on websites, on the newspaper websites, and it's great to speak to you direct and hear your own view on it. That's no problem at all. Lovely. Well, thanks ever so much for your time, Derek, and thanks for coming on the show. Thanks very much. Okay, we've already covered Word of the Week with Riparian from Paul, but another term we could have discussed was hybrid swarm, because that's the factor which would have been behind our blurred DNA result on the Bannockburn cat. Hybrid swarm is about breeding amongst hybrids and the related backcrossing amongst close species. So, given that this is an important factor for some of the cats we'll be investigating, we'll give hybrid swarm a bit more attention in the coming episode. Back in episode 23, our guest was the Texas-based big cats researcher Michael Mays. He outlined the mystery Black Panther sightings in North America for us and looked at the out-of-place eastern pumas as well. Michael is trending on this topic currently on a couple of American podcasts, but remember, we heard him here first. In fact, I'm also on one of those podcasts, so if you want to hear him some more and with me tagging along, then head over to episode 24 of Sasquatch Tracks podcast. It was splendid that they wanted to delve into this puzzle of Black Panther sightings, both in Britain and North America and then compare it with their usual coverage of citizen science work on Sasquatch issues. And of course, Michael is well qualified on that one because he is one of the leading lights in the North American Wood Ape Conservancy. So, Sasquatch Tracks episode 24 is available now on podcast players or directly on the Sasquatch Tracks podcast website. Okay, for our future coverage, we are returning for more from Scotland soon, but next time we will catch up with recent and past panther sightings in the Wirral with two different guests. We'll hear about their own encounters and those of others that they have heard about, and beyond what's been in the press this year. They are both now trying to work out how big cats would use the Wirral landscape, so we'll hear their thoughts on the Wirral's big cat country next time. We're closing out now, so thanks again to our guests Paul and Derek, and also kudos to Gary, who found and drew our attention to the Bannockburn cat, and has helped us realise this topic is maybe a bit more messy scientifically than we perhaps thought. Righto, thank you for supporting the show, everyone. Please take care of yourselves, and bye for now. Bye for now.